Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for Jesus' sake. Amen. A few years ago, my wife Adelia and I decided it was time to replace our dining room chairs. I found an ad on Craigslist by a woman who was selling a set of four white pottery barn dining chairs for cheap. I set up an appointment to see them the following day. That day, as I was walking out the front door to view the chairs, it dawned on me that this could be a scam. So I asked Adelia, how will I know if the chairs are really from Pottery Barn? Just just look under the seat. There should be a stamp seared into the wood saying, Pottery Barn. Gotcha. When I arrived at the woman's house, she greeted me with a warm smile and a friendly hello. She then led me outside to her backyard where she had all four chairs lined up so that I could view them. I looked them over, trying not to appear too obvious and trying to detect if they were really made by Pottery Barn. I finally got up the courage to inspect the bottom of the chairs. No logo, no markings, no indication that they were from Pottery Barn anywhere on the chairs. Skeptical, I then asked the lady with a kindest voice I could muster up if they were really Pottery Barn. Shocked and in somewhat of an insulted voice, she assured me that the chairs were real. She shared that she was an honest person and would never try to lie or betray me for just a handful of dollars. Something inside of me knew the chairs were probably not made by Pottery Barn, but they were nice and would be a good match for our dining room and I liked them nonetheless. After a bit of negotiating and haggling back and forth, we came to an agreement, and I loaded the chairs into my car, and then I took off. After a couple blocks down the road, I realized that I had paid the lady too much and decided to turn my car around and go back and straighten things out. I parked my car in front of the lady's house and walked up to the front door. As I got closer and closer, I could hear the woman and her neighbor talking in her backyard. To my surprise, I could hear them talking about me. um, They were tearing me apart. The woman who had sold me the chairs was telling her neighbor how irritating I was. She continued by saying I was a jerk and a cheapskate, and if I had been there much longer, she would have told me to go jump off a rock, and that is the G-rated version of that story. (laughs) It was so surreal listening to someone talk so unkindly about me, hearing and knowing exactly what and how they felt about me without them knowing or even realizing I knew it. Embarrassed, awkward, and irritated, frustrated, and feeling definitely ripped off, I quickly got back in my car and left before I did or said something I don't ultimately regret. 
One of the many things I find powerful in the reaccounting of our gospel, as well as all the gospel combined concerning the gathering of the disciples in the upper room on the night before Jesus was to be crucified, is despite knowing in advance his disciples would bicker and dispute among themselves as to who was the greatest within the group, make oblivious remarks concerning Jesus' servanthood, lie straight to his face, and be so preoccupied with themselves that they failed to even notice to wash Jesus' feet, let alone one another's feet, just simply out of custom and courtesy. Not to mention all of the other messes that would proceed after the upper room. Luke's Gospel tells us this, despite knowing all of that, Jesus greatly desired before his suffering to eat the Passover with his disciples. What I also find so powerful is that Jesus washed the feet of a man who was about to betray him to torture and death. I can't help but ask after our reading this evening, how was Jesus able to stomach the washing of the feet of the man who was about to betray him? I mean, why didn't Jesus just remove Jesus? Why didn't Jesus just remove Judas from the picture? before washing his disciples' feet. If I had written the script that night for Jesus, it would have gone something like this. Jesus pulls Judas aside before all the disciples gather in the upper room and says to him, Look, you've done enough damage. I know what you've done, and I know what you're going to do. Sorry, not sorry. You're not welcome here. There's just one problem with that. If entrance into the upper room was based solely on the disciples' actions then and to come, reality was none of them were qualified to participate in that night. Which then begets this question. Why was Jesus so passionate to gather with such an incompetent group of disciples before his suffering to eat the Passover with them? And why did Jesus allow Judas to partake in the foot washing? I think the first part of that answer lies in verse 1 of John chapter 13, where it says, He loved them to the end. I used to read this verse and think it meant Jesus loved the disciples all the way up until the final breath on, his, on the cross. While that statement is true, loving to them is loving them to the end is not talking about the chronological end, like the end of Jesus' life. What it's talking about is this love, love to the utmost limits, to the furthest extremities, to the fullest extreme, full send, as students at Casa like to say. So what does this utmost kind of love look like? One writer describes loving them to the end like this. They were weak and defective in knowledge and in grace, dull and forgetful, and yet, though he reproved them often, he never ceased to love them and take care of them. Translated, Despite them being ragamuffins, Jesus loved them anyway. 
because they were his. To be loved by Jesus to the end is literally an indescribable thing. It is deeper than any of us knows or can fully comprehend. Over the years of working with students, I have found that one of students' greatest struggles is that they find it difficult to grasp the depths of God's love for them. But perhaps it's not just students who struggle with this. It's everyone here to some extent. I guess that's why Paul prayed for us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, that you might have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This kind of love is powerful. And if you've ever experienced it, you know how deep, rich, and full it can be. The great, or excuse me, the engaging storyteller and sociology professor Tony Campolo tells this story. The great Swiss-German theologian Karl Barth delivered one of the closing lectures of his life at the University of Chicago Divinity School. At the end of, his, at the, end of the lecture, the president of the seminary told the audience that Dr. Bart was not well and was very tired. And though he thought Dr. Bart would like to be open for question, he probably could not handle the strain. Then he said, therefore, I'll ask just one question on behalf of all of us. He turned to Bart and asked, of all the theological insight you have ever had, which do you consider to be the greatest of them all? This was a remarkable question to ask a man who had written tens of thousands of pages of some of the most sophisticated theology ever put down on paper. The students sat with pads and pencils ready. They wanted to jot down the premier insight of the greatest theologian of their time. Karl Barth closed his eyes and thought for a while, and then he smiled, opened his eyes, and said to the young seminarians, the greatest theological insight I have ever had is this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That night in the upper room, Jesus knew the most powerful way to illustrate the extent of his love for his disciples would be to humble himself and wash their feet. The only problem was this. Foot washing was a job solely reserved and given to the lowliest of servants. Surely Jesus wouldn't stoop so low. Here's how one writer describes Jesus' act, Jesus's actions in the washing of his disciples' feet and how Jesus went low. He did it with all the humble ceremony that, he, that could be, went through all the parts of service distinctly. He did it as if he had been used to thus to serve, did it himself alone, and had none to minister to him in it. He girded himself with a towel as servants throw a napkin on their arms and put an apron before them. He poured water into the basin out of the water pots that stood by and he washed their feet and to complete the service, he wiped them. Was there not a more dignified way for Jesus to illustrate his love for them than to utmost humiliate himself, becoming the likes of a servant? 
but not just a servant, the lowliest of servants. Jesus knew, as one writer explains, in the kingdom amongst Christians, authority flows from service. The one who is the greatest, the one who serves the most, who does not throw their weight around. In this kingdom where God has made foolish the things of this world, as I heard one pastor intensely preach one day, the first will be last, the foolish will be wise, the humble will be exhausted, least will be greatest, those who are despised will receive honor, the poor will become rich, the weak, strong, those who serve will be served, giving will be better than receiving. As Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet, he called them now to think about the significance of what he had done and then mandated them to do the same, to love one another and to serve one another. One commentator wrote this concerning this mandate to love and serve one another. He wished to teach his disciples that they ought to be willing to wait on one another, serve one another, minister to one another, even to the least and lowliest of things. They should think nothing too low or humble or menial to undertake if they can show love, kindness, love, kindness, condescension to one another. If he, the King of Kings, condescended to leave heaven and to save souls and dwell 31 years in this sinful world, there is nothing that we should think too lowly to undertake. As I wrap up my homily this evening, I want to add a couple of final thoughts and then end with a story. To be clear, this passage is not about a handful of unkept guys who needed someone to wash their dirty feet. It's much bigger than that. Jesus' actions of servanthood and humiliation were a foreshadowing, a mirroring, a representation of things to come that were right around the corner which we will gather again tomorrow on Good Friday and remember together the death of Christ. The core of our gospel this evening is that Jesus, our Lord and Master, is preparing to take on the utmost grueling humiliation in order to cleanse us from the dirt, filth, and grime of our own sin. Because of his perfect and humble example first, as Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 tells us, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We can now live and serve one another with humility and obedience because he did it first. My second thought is this. I've always wondered, why did Jesus include Judas in that upper room? I'm sure there are a handful of reasons why Jesus chose to do what he did. Perhaps just maybe one of them was because Jesus wanted us to know the importance of loving not just the lovable, but the unlovable too. The selfish, the betrayers, the prideful, the arrogant, the gossipers, the ragamuffins. Something I struggle with every day. And now a quick story. Once again, storyteller Tony Campolo tells this story. 
The story is told of Richard Bellinger, a young boy in South Carolina who was the son of a Baptist minister. One Sunday night, Richard decided to shine his father's shoes. The following night, his father put a silver dollar on the dresser of his son's room with a note commending his son for what he had done and telling him that the dollar was his reward. The next morning, when the father put on his shoes, he felt something hard and metallic in one of them. When he took the shoe off and reached inside, he found a silver dollar he had given his son and the night before, along with the dollar, was a note that simply read, I did it for love. To be a Christian is to love. To be a Christian is to love Jesus so much that you want to be like him. To be a Christian is to try to do what Jesus would do, not for a reward, but out of loving gratitude for all that Jesus has done for you. Amen.